Open up to the book of John, chapter 21. If you're with us and you're new, you're relatively new with us, like Charles said, it'll be great to hang out uh, at, our, at our new members' orientation in a couple of weeks' time. But uh, also just want to let you know that this morning we are finishing quite a long journey that we've been on in the book of John. We are in John chapter 21. We've been in John for 21 weeks. We've essentially done a message per chapter. And uh, we wrap that up. We wrap that up today. And so in chapter 21, we're going to see another post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to his disciples. And it's one of those really special ones because there's not often times in Scripture where you learn something about what Jesus does for us, about who we are and about who he is. Sometimes we learn those separately through the Scriptures. But this is one of those passages, one of those appearances, those post-resurrection appearances where we learn a lot about ourselves, about what Jesus does for us and who Jesus is. So it really is an exciting portion of Scripture. So we're just going to dive straight in. We're going to read chapter 21. We're going to go to verse 15 this morning, and, uh, and we're going to end there. We're not going to read all of chapter 21. So chapter 21, starting in the beginning, this is what it says. It says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again, to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. So you may be more familiar with the Sea of Galilee. It was often also referred to as the Sea of Tiberias because Emperor Tiberius had a little spot on the Sea of Galilee there. And so they would refer to it as the Sea of Tiberias as well. And he revealed himself in this way, and we'll get into those details just now, speaking about Jesus and how he revealed himself to the disciples. But then it goes on to tell us who was, who was there, who Jesus revealed himself to. It says, Simon Peter, he was there. Thomas, called the twin, he was there. Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of Thunder, and the two other disciples were there with them. We don't know who those other two disciples were. But all these guys are together. I just want to pause for a little minute and speak about this and unpack the idea that these guys were here together. Shortly after the resurrection of Jesus, his disciples can be seen hanging out together. And you wonder, like, well, what's so significant about that? It's just a bunch of guys who like each other, hanging out, fishing. Well, what was so unusual about that was that in those days, segregation and separation and prejudice existed in a form and an extreme that we can't even begin to imagine nowadays. It still exists today. There's still a lot of prejudice today. There's still a lot of segregation and separation and disunity. But back then, it would have appalled you to know the levels at which people were separated, how much prejudice people carried, how much disunity there was. The world was divided far more than what it was divided and what it is divided today. There was extreme prejudice everywhere. Prejudice based on geography. Where you come from? Where did you grow up? Right? I experienced a little bit of that when I came to Cape Town. Oh, you're from the Eastern Cape. <laughs> right? Guys still, uh, still wonder, you know, why I go back there on holiday. Where did you grow up? What town did you come from? Right? Where are you from? Prejudice because of that. Prejudice because of your name, your family of origin. Or what surname do you have? Oh, you got a Jewish surname. Hmm, oh, you got this surname. Oh, you got that surname. And so there was this prejudice according to 
your family lineage, and that was often told by your surname, your skin color, your ethnicity, the work that you did. Are you a blue-collar worker? Are you a white-collar worker? Are you a fisherman? Are you this? Are you that? And often people would assume stuff about you based on these things. Your gender was one of those things as well. The ancient rabbis had this horrific saying. They would pray this prayer and go, thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile. Thank you, God, that I'm not a dog. And thank you, God, that I'm not a woman. It was extreme prejudice based on these things. So knowing and understanding then that that was the case in the culture, then looking at the names of the people that were gathered together and hanging out, it really is something quite extraordinary and remarkable. Because you've got all these men hanging out together and they're all coming from different backgrounds and upbringings and all sorts of different histories, social standings. When you look at them, they're united. And the one thing that unites them is their love for Jesus. They just want to speak the name of Jesus. And speaking the name of Jesus and knowing Jesus that's brought them together. And it is so incredibly important. And I'll give you an example. I'll explain to you why it's so important. Not only for them, but for us today that we look like this. You've got Peter and his brother Andrew. The two of them are fishermen like John and James. They're just your average blue-collar workers. And so if you are living back in that day and you're on the outside of Christianity and you're looking in, you see guys like you hanging out with Jesus. And so the idea of following Jesus isn't so far removed from you. Like, hey, those are guys just like me, simple fishermen. They're following Jesus. And then you look at this guy, Nathaniel, and, and, and he's in the mix. And we know from a textual study and a study of his name, it's highly likely that this guy comes from royal lineage. Nathaniel, he is wealthy, man. He's, he's, he's a merchant. He's the, he's the boss. He, he's got a lot of money. And he is, he is really, socially speaking, right up there. And he's hanging out with these guys. And so if you're on the outside of Christianity, looking in, and you're looking at those who are following Jesus, and you're observing his early followers, and you're a white-collar worker, and you're a merchant, or you come from royal lineage, you go, wow, even guys like me are following Jesus and hanging out with guys like them, who ordinarily wouldn't hang out with, but they're together, and it seems to be Jesus that's doing this thing. And so there's all sorts of different people with different uh, dispositions and personalities that are coming together because of Jesus. Peter, we look at him and we'll see just now, he was impulsive. He was the guy who, when Jesus said he's going to be crucified, Peter was like, no way, Jesus, I'll give my life for you. And we know what happened after that. Peter was the guy who whipped out the sword and just chopped off a guy's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus was like, put that away. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. Peter was impulsive. Thomas, he's this thinker. He, he, he's a critical thinker. He often gets a bad rap. We call him Doubting Thomas. Well, well, Peter was denying Peter. Thomas was Doubting Thomas. Call him Doubting Thomas. But he's, he's the guy who's thinking. He's critical. He wants to see things before he believes them. So he says to Jesus, I'm not going to believe it's you until I put my hands into the holes in your hand and the holes in your side. And Jesus says, okay. And then Thomas believes and Jesus says, blessed are you, Thomas, because you believe, but you've seen and you've touched me. Even more blessed are those who see and believe if they haven't got to do this. There was division even due to the way you spoke, your language that you used. So Greek was the dominant language back in the day. And to Greek people, they came up with this derogatory term to refer to people who don't speak Greek. Because to them, if you didn't speak Greek, it sounded like you were saying, bah, 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 bah. So they came up with the term barbarian. Right? 
And that, that was a term assigned to someone who couldn't speak Greek. So they would, oh, you're a barbarian. Because that's what you sound like when you speak, because you don't speak Greek. In the midst as well, you've got Simon the Zealot in this group, who was always talking politics. This is the guy who probably somehow still harbored the secret desire, right, for the Roman emperors to be overthrown and for there to be a Jewish king ruling and reigning. Probably always talking politics. He's redeemed by Jesus. He comes to know Jesus. He eventually finds out that Jesus is not there to rule and reign politically, but there's a bigger and broader and more beautiful agenda that God has. But he's talking about politics all the time, wanting things to work properly and work well. He's probably moaning about taxes and how they can be used better and all that sort of stuff. Fixing potholes in the roads and all that. We could go on and on and on about the diversity of the people hanging out together, but the the point I'm trying to make is that there's unity in diversity with the disciples that are following Jesus because of Jesus. And so here's the question. Do you not think that our world needs to see this type of unity and diversity today? Just as much as it was needed back then, it is needed today. Can we see, can you see, can I see the power of the gospel at work in my life and in our church in this way today? When people on the outside of Christianity look into your life and look into your social circles and look into this church, can they see beauty in unity despite our diversity? Can they see that? So we read about in the opening verses of chapter 21 in John. The world desperately needs to see God's people unified for the glory of His name. So often we think about church as being for us, our needs, and about me, and my faith. It's about me. But connecting with one another, it's about the glory of God. And it doesn't matter what different backgrounds we have and upbringings, and it doesn't matter how much money we earn, or what language we speak, or what language is our dominant language at home, or what school we went to, or, 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 or where we're from. The thing that unites us is that we bow down together at the feet of Jesus and go, my Lord and my King. He makes us one. I think there's a reason why the Bible describes church not as a corporation or as a business, but it's described as a family because families love unconditionally regardless of your differences and your preferences. And we look more like a blended family. That's why I love celebrating the dedication this morning. So as I was meditating on this, I was wondering what's necessary for this unity to prevail and for it to exist. For one, first and foremost, we need to love Jesus above and beyond anything and everything. It's what kept these guys together. This love for Jesus. This just being able to give themselves to Him and for Him wholly is what unified them despite their differences. But you also have to drop your prejudices. And for some of us, you're going, oh, that's easy. I can drop my prejudices. That, that's, that's not a problem because prejudice is a bad thing. But what about your preferences? What about dropping your preferences? You see, You go, what do you mean by my preferences? Why are they so bad? Well, we can so easily turn our preferences into prejudices. You go, well, no, that's not me. That's never going to happen. Okay? What style of worship music do you like? When you ask somebody that in church, it's a loaded question. (laughs) Right? Because what you're really asking is, is not what type of worship music do you like. It's do you like what I like? And I can so easily make my preference a prejudice. Should we have drums or should we not have drums? Should it be louder? Should it be softer? What translation of the Bible do you read? New King James or Old King James? ESV, NIV, 
NASB, NLT, which is the message, right? <laughs> and we have our preferences and they become our prejudices. You know what makes for a really mature church is for us to step in and to drop our preferences and enjoy watching other brothers and sisters enjoy their preferences. That makes for a mature church. Give up our preferences. Make sure they don't become prejudice. Remember what Jesus prayed back in John chapter 17, James Pace, when he was up here and preached on that. He highlighted that this is part of the prayer of Jesus. Jesus, when he's praying for his disciples in John 17, he prays, God, unify them. He prays for unity. And then what's amazing, and James says it blew his mind, it blew my mind as well, to what degree is Jesus praying for unity? To what degree should they be unified? Well, it says in John chapter 17, Father, unify them in the same way that you and I are unified. The unity that should exist between us is a unity that exists between the Father and the Son. That's the degree to which Jesus prayed for us to be unified. When we as a church get what was happening in first century AD, and we know that it is true for us today and we should be working on the same thing, and we get it right by the grace of God, there is nothing on this earth created or seen, unseen, that can ever come close to biblical Christianity. Nothing. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like what Jesus does in people's lives and through a gathered body of believers that are diverse and different but unified in his name for his glory. There's nothing that comes close to it. Then from verse 3 onwards, we see this beautiful change that then takes place in the life of Peter. And we learn some stuff about ourselves and about Jesus as well here. Remember, Peter's the strong leader. He's the loud mouth of the disciples. And it goes on to say in verse 3, Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. So they said to him, we will go with you. Peter's a leader. Where he goes, people go. Where he leads, they follow. And they went out and got into a boat. But that night they caught nothing, it says. Verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the great quantity of fish they had caught. Now, for some of you, you may recognize this. It might sound a little bit familiar, this account of what happened to these guys back then. Because in Luke chapter 5, there's almost an exact replica of this scenario outplaying itself. It's very, very similar in Luke chapter 5, Peter's present. Peter's in his boat. Like in John chapter 21, Peter is fishing. He's caught nothing, which is embarrassing for a professional fisher, fisherman, fisher person. There are similar words from Jesus, a similar question. Have you caught anything? Do you have any fish? No, we don't have any fish. Chuck the net on this side of the boat. And what happens? Well, same result. Luke chapter 5, they pull in large quantities of fish. John chapter 21, they put in a large amount of fish. But then we get to one crucial and critical difference between John chapter 21 and Luke chapter 5. And the difference is this. In Luke chapter 5, when this happens to the disciples, the response of Peter is fundamentally different. Here's how Peter responds in Luke chapter 5. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish 
that they had taken. So what's happening here for Peter in this moment? What's happening here happens throughout all of Scripture, and that is this, that whenever God appears before man, man is laid low. Whenever God reveals himself and you find yourself as a human in the presence of God, we see something that we don't often see on a day-to-day basis, and that is the gravity and the weight of our sin in the light of a holy and righteous and awesome God. We see the degree to which we are separated from God when God rocks up. His holiness becomes obvious. Isaiah, when he sees God and God speaks to him, Isaiah says, Lord, away from me. Woe is me. I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. John, when he's writing the book of Revelation on the island of Patmos and Jesus reveals himself to him, John turns around and doesn't go, oh, yeah, what's up, Jesus? The scriptures say as he turns to see the, the resurrected and glorified Jesus, John sees him and it says, I fell at his feet as though dead. Peter in Luke chapter 5, he recognizes that he's in the presence of someone wholly unlike him, righteous, holy, powerful, some supernatural being of sorts, maybe even God, but uh, depart from me, get away from me, I'm not worthy to be in your presence, is the response of Peter in Luke chapter 5. However, in John chapter 1, Peter's there again, he's fishing again, he's catching nothing again, Jesus says to them again, Take your nets and chuck it on the other side. And the response from Peter in this situation is totally and utterly different. Here's how he responds. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John writing about himself, by the way, or is that, that disciple, me, who Jesus loves, therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord! When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Peter jumps overboard and begins swimming to Jesus as fast as he possibly can. The response this time is not, get away from me, Lord. The response this time is, oh, let me not forget my coat. Oh, this is white. It's going to be see-through. I don't wanna... Okay, let me take my coat. Jumps into the water. Doesn't worry about paddling to the side. Doesn't worry about anything else. Doesn't worry about the other disciples. He's just into the water and he's gone. In Luke chapter 5, Peter's saying, get away from me, Jesus. In, Luke tra- in John chapter 21, Peter can't get to Jesus fast enough. And there's something really special that's going on here as he does it. It's it's the fact that he abandons his pride to get to Jesus. And you go, what what do you mean he abandons his pride? Well, in those days, like in some of our schools, it was bad to run. I don't know if you're at school, you're ever told, don't run in the corridors. It's like the very thing you wanted to do. And I realized you could crash into people. But it was undignified. It was undignified to run. Back then it was even worse. The culture was one where if you were seen to be in a hurry, if you were seen to be in a rush, if you were seen to be running, it communicated, it gave the impression that your life wasn't in order, that you didn't have things under control, that you needed to rush from one place to the next. And so it was very undignified to be running or to be in a rush to get everywhere. It gave the impression that you didn't have your affairs in order. And so for Peter to just abandon the boat and not wait to get to shore and to just dive into the ocean with his cloak and his undergarments and to just start swimming to Jesus was undignified. But Peter doesn't care what others think about him. He doesn't care that he's in a rush to get to Jesus. He just wants to be in the presence of of Jesus. Like David, when the Ark of the Covenant returned to Israel and David was dancing, it says, like in a wild way in front of the Ark, and people looked at him with disdain and scorn, 
Peter is wanting to get to Jesus because he wants to be in his presence. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 6 that when David was dancing in the presence of the Lord, in, in the presence of the ark, and celebrating the return of the presence of God to his people, that one of the daughters of Saul, which was his wife, looked out through a window and saw him, and it says that she despised him in her heart. And then when she got to talk to him, she was like, what are you doing? This is so undignified. And David's response is a famous one. He said, I will become even more undignified than this. It doesn't matter that Peter looks like a fool for the sake of Jesus. He knows where he desperately wants to and needs to be. This is one of those beautiful things about the gospel and our salvation is it's so freeing. One of the most dangerous things we do as people, and I've done so often in my life, and I'm sure you have as well, is take your self-worth and your self-esteem and your value and place it into the hands of other people as if they have the ability to call out of you what God's put in you. And so we, we almost give ourselves wholly to people in this desperate attempt to get recognized and to have our self-esteem grown and nurtured, to be valued. And what often happens is we put it into the hands of sinful people and we get crushed. And Peter's going, I'm not going to ask you what you think about my love for Jesus and my hurry to get him. I'm just going. Church, God is the one who defines us. He's the one who loves us. He's the one who says he sees what he sees in you. He's the one calling it out. People can affirm it, but go to him to hear about it. And Peter knows this, and so he's desperately swimming to his best friend and his savior. He's not trying to win favor with people or gain their attention. Peter's not trying to turn people's faces towards him. He knows that his face is already turned towards Jesus, and Jesus' face is already turned towards him. And he's going. It's this emotional and logical response. Emotional because Peter just wants to be with his friend. I just want to be with my friend. I want to be with Jesus. And this logical one going, this is the resurrected king. This is the savior of the world. This is my savior. She wants to be with him. She has a question. Is this your disposition towards Jesus? Is this your response to Jesus? Is this your desire when it comes to the presence of Jesus. Do you feel the same way and think the same way Peter did and you go after Jesus with abandon or are you too worried about what other people think about you? Are you too worried about what culture says you should or shouldn't do? Are you too worried about what, it might, might, what, what might be considered undignified in church when it comes to worship or sharing your, your faith in the workplace or on the sports field or with friends and family? Is your disposition one of complete abandon? Jesus coming wholly after you, diving over, this, diving over the edge of this boat and into the water. Verse 8, the other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish. They were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. So Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Just a random thing, I was just reading this. Peter must have been an absolute brute. He must have been like a front row prop. Booker at least. Before it says that the disciples, plural, brought the nets, right? And then it says Peter, he goes by himself. 
to grab the net, and he dragged it by himself. 153 fish. About, don't want to do the maths, but it's probably about 100 and something kgs worth of fish. Peter just grabs it by himself. So not only does he just dive over, but it's like seeing Eben Etzebeth just diving over, swimming to be with Jesus. Now, as we've read this, there might have been some small details that stuck out to you, and you wonder, what is the relevance of them being there? So, like, they were out, in, they were out at sea about 100 yards off. They brought the net back in. It was full of fish, 153 fish. Why, why so specific? Why, why is it so significant? What's so significant about that is that this is, this, this is the way history is recorded. It, the Bible is not written in the form of mythology, the Bible's not written as fiction, it's written as a historical account, and so this is the way of history. When you're writing, you write down those details if you're writing a historical accurate account. They were out at shore about 100 yards off. It doesn't advance the story in any way if you're writing fiction. It doesn't do anything significant to the story. It doesn't help you understand the story anymore, but it just simply was what it was, and the Gospels are reliable because of that. They make little comments like that and add in little details to help you to understand that this was real. Why 153 fish? Why is it important? Well, because John was probably there and he's, he's going afterwards and he said, like, the disciples divided the fish. You can get some, you can get some, you can get some. You, oh, there's 153 fish. And so when other people read this, like, yeah, John's account is real. It's historical. That We did have 153 fish. In fact, it was terrible because we couldn't divide it evenly, 153. But it chopped one in half and then like, right? It's a style of history. It's a style of recording events. Like in Greek mythology, you hear about Zeus and his lightning bolts and throwing lightning bolts down and all that sort of stuff and how unapproachable he is, unapproachable. What you don't read about when you read Greek mythology is how Zeus stopped to tie his shoelaces or how he brushed his teeth or what he had for breakfast or who his best friends were. Because it's mythology. It's fiction. It's hearsay. But when Scripture writes and records, it's recording actual events. And so these things are contained. But more importantly, the Bible doesn't only contain these things because they're historically and factually true. These things are contained sometimes because in those small details, there are not only things that we must hear because they were true, but we need to hear because there's something deeper in those details that we haven't seen before. For example, one of the amazing pieces of detail that we read about here, that we don't often think more about, is when it says this, they got out onto land and they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. We've heard about the Last Supper, right? This was the last breakfast. And some people are really put out by the fact that Jesus was having a fish fry, right? I, I love fried fish, but there are some who are like, fry is for red meat and red meat only. Right? And so Jesus is having a fish fry. And there's significance in the fact that Jesus has prepared a meal for his disciples to refresh them. Because Jesus, from the beginning of time, has been refreshing his own. I don't have time to get into why that's significant, but what I wanted to focus on is something that maybe you didn't think we'd focus on, and that's the mention of the fact that there's a charcoal fire. It could have just said a fire. Jesus could have made it out of sticks. But it says there was a charcoal fire that Jesus had made. And in all of the New Testament, and the NRV omits this, which is a bit sad, but most other translations have it in because it's there. In all of the New Testament, there's only one other place where a charcoal fire is mentioned. Peter was there, Jesus was there, it's a cold night, and Jesus is warming his hands, Peter is warming his hands around a charcoal fire. And this little girl comes up to him and says, hey, I know you, you're one of the disciples of Jesus. 
And Peter's standing around this charcoal fire. He's warming his hands and he says, no, I don't, I don't know Jesus. You've got the wrong guy. And this little servant girl says, no, I'm sure you were with Jesus. Are you sure you don't know that guy there being, being put on trial? Peter goes, no, I, I don't know him. And this little girl the third time says, I, I saw you in the garden with Jesus. You are one of his disciples. And Peter emphatically the third time denies Jesus and says, get away from me. I don't know this man. And the scriptures, it says, at that point, Jesus and Peter lock eyes. And Peter is broken because he's fulfilled the prophetic word that Jesus said would be fulfilled in him denying him three times. Peter standing around this charcoal fire. Now in John chapter 21, Peter and Jesus are together again around a charcoal fire. But this time it's different. But can you imagine for a second being Peter, wanting to be with your best friend, wanting to be with Jesus, wanting to be with your Lord and Savior, and you dive off this boat, abandoned, you don't care about your pride, you're just swimming to shore to get to Jesus as fast as possible, and all of a sudden the aroma of a charcoal fire hits you. And like you know, as South Africans, you know when someone's brying with charcoal and when they're brying with wood. That's the Weber bra. That's a charcoal fire. Right? And some of us will look down because our preference is wood. Yeah. Okay. But can you imagine the aroma that hits him? He smells this charcoal fire. And as he approaches Jesus, you can imagine he's thinking, am I, am I going to be accepted by Jesus? You know, there's moments in life you've experienced something absolutely horrendous. And all it takes is a song, a smell, a taste. Something like that, just maybe hot, cold temperature, sweet stuff, something small that's totally unrelated, maybe a little bit related, all of a sudden brings back this flood of memory of stuff that was horrendous that you want to forget. This is probably what it was like for Peter as he smells this charcoal fire, because the last time he was around a charcoal fire and he was with Jesus, he was denying Jesus three times. But this time, they're around this charcoal fire together, and Peter isn't denying Jesus. He's having breakfast with him. And Jesus says to him in a sense, hey, come eat. And what Jesus does when he says, hey, come and let's have breakfast together. Let's bra this fish together. Let's eat around this charcoal fire together. Jesus is saying, in another way, it's okay. You're friends with me and I love you and you're forgiven. This is what grace and mercy look like. This is what forgiveness looks like. Jesus, in this moment, he's replacing the horrific memory that Peter has of standing around a charcoal fire and denying our Savior with a moment of deep, intimate reconciliation. And as South Africans, we get that. We get intimate around the fire and around the bri. You know, sharing a meal together is amazing. And so Jesus, he invites Peter in and he says, around this charcoal fire, we're going to be restored. And it's sending a message to us today, every single doubter, every denier, that it doesn't matter how much you've doubted, how you've denied Jesus, there's a charcoal fire set up for you somewhere where Jesus is saying, come and eat with me. And it may even be for you this morning. It doesn't matter what you've carried. For some of us, we carry so much burden and luggage into our relationship with Jesus because we make mistakes and we mess up as if we weren't going to. And then when we've disappointed Jesus, we give up as if Jesus is not going to receive us back. And for some of us this morning, you need to hear this. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you're working through, what you're wrestling with. If you think that Jesus doesn't love you and can't restore you, you're not serving the Jesus of the Bible and the King that we serve. You have an incorrect perspective on Him. The Lord says, come and eat with me and be restored. 
And to end off this morning, I'm just going to read this last couple of verses. It says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, then feed my sheep. A really important question to ask when we are reading this is, what does Jesus mean about these? So when he says to Peter, do you love me more than these? What are the these that he's talking about? There's three possibilities. Jesus could be saying, Peter, do you love me more than these fish? Peter, do you love me more than these disciples? In other words, do you love me more than you love the disciples? Or do you love me more than these other disciples love me? In other words, is your love for me greater than their love for me? Most people believe that Jesus is asking Peter something to do with the disciples and whether he loves the disciples more than he loves Jesus or whether uh, he thinks the other disciples love Jesus more than he does. It centers around that. But as I read this and as I've read about it and as I've researched this, it is striking to me and obvious to me that Jesus is not asking Peter this question. Jesus is not trying to create rivalry. He's not trying to turn loving him into some competition. He spent time trying to dismantle rivalry among them. And so to ask a question like that in front of the disciples is to maybe cause rivalry and division and disunity. Imagine Jesus in front of the other disciples. Peter, do you love me more than them? Lord, this is a bit awkward. You know I do, but now you're going to make me say it. Or, or Peter, do you think you love me more than they love me? Uh, yes. Uh, like, or no. I, I believe Jesus is asking Peter if he loves him more than fishing. I believe Jesus is saying to Peter, do you love catching fish more than me? Do you love what was your previous occupation more than me? Look at verse 3. Simon Peter says to them, I'm going fishing. Right? He's not on mission. He's not telling the world that Jesus is resurrected, living alive in the King of heaven. He's not telling people that. Instead, Peter's returned to his old vocation. Peter's returned to what maybe was a love for him, a hobby, a place where he could escape and get his mind off of things. He's returned to doing what he professionally did best, although he wasn't catching fish whenever Jesus was there. Right? Peter has failed colossally. That's, that's the tone of this passage. He's failed, and so maybe he feels he's unworthy. He's denied Jesus three times. Who am I? to be called by Jesus to go and serve the kingdom, I have failed royally. And so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go back to fishing. Come guys, I'm going to go fish. Perhaps Peter thinks he's unqualified for the work because of his failure in the courtyard in front of the charcoal fire. But three times Peter denies Jesus. Three times Jesus asks him, do you love me? And whenever Peter says yes, and Jesus says then feed my sheep, feed my lambs. In other words, go tell the world about me. In other words, do you love fishing for fish and feeding people physically more than you love fishing for men, which I called you to do in the first place? Do you love feeding them physically or do you love feeding them spiritually? 
And so when Jesus is talking to Peter, he's saying, do you love me more than these being the fish? Do you love fishing more than me? There was a very real chance that if Jesus didn't restore Peter, Peter would have just got sucked back into his old lifestyle of fishing. Like we can, when we've disappointed Jesus, we go, oh God, I'm not worthy anymore. And so I'm just going to give up. I can't start again. I can't start again. I can't start again. And so we just go back to doing what we were doing before we knew Jesus. And Jesus is saying, do you love me more than that? If you do, then fulfill your mandate to preach the gospel, to make disciples, to tell them about me. Peter doesn't draw when Jesus asks him the third time on his past to tell Jesus what he had done for him because his past condemns him. Peter just says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And if you're here this morning and you're a believer and you know that you love Jesus but you feel like you failed him and he can't use you, it's time for you to do what Peter did and go, God, you know that I love you. And at your feet is where I want to be and you need to allow Jesus to restore you. It's time to be to stop being apathetic about our faith and thinking that it's all about you being perfect and righteous and that somehow because you are self-righteous and holy that now you can achieve the things that God has called you to for his kingdom. It's always been about his glory and him using the weak things of this world for his glory. You know me, you know my heart, Peter says. Jesus knows you and he knows your heart. So it's time to deal with your past, to move on and to allow Jesus to use you for great things. This is the grace that we stand in. This is the mercy that we have because of a wonderful Savior. This is the truth about who Jesus is. And as a church, united, fulfilling our mandate, honoring Jesus, being restored, being intimate with Him, that's how Jesus is going to use us to reach a lost and broken world for the glory of His name. We need to call people to see Him, to know Him, and to believe in Him, which has been the whole theme of John throughout this past 21 weeks. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, I just want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for your presence. And Lord, as we, as we come to the end of our time here in this place this morning, I pray that it would not be the end of your spirit tenderly and mercifully and graciously leading people into a place of restoration and wholeness and newness with you. Lord, as Anne brought the interpretation to the word this morning, it was a call to look up to the face of Jesus to stop looking at ourselves, to stop looking at our circumstances, but to look to you, our great restorer, God Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, I pray that that would be true for us, every single son and daughter in this place. We'd be restored to full relationship with you. And that God, even those in this place who do not know you, that there would be salvation for them today for the first time as they meet you and see you face to face. As you called the disciples originally, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. May you call people out of this place this morning to do the same thing. In Jesus' name, amen.